Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster still as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined on the programme by Daniel Lindstrom. Daniel is the owner of Impact Food International Limited, a superfood wholesaler based in Kent, founded to improve the health and happiness of humanity. And I think we could all use a bit of that at the moment. Daniel, welcome to the programme. Great to have you on with us today. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for thanks for inviting me on to the to the program, and uh, yeah, it's nice to be here. It's fantastic having you, Daniel. Now, first and foremost, this podcast is about leadership. Um, but what does that word mm. "leader" actually mean to you personally? Yeah, so I, yeah, I would say that it's something that's developed for me over the over the years. I mean, I when I started my company, um, I didn't set out. I mean, I, I I was just a sole trader. I used to do shows and markets and that kind of thing so obviously I was sort of leading myself <laughs> at the beginning so that's what it used to be for me uh, previously obviously today we are a medium-sized company and um, I have people that I'm sort of leading on a daily weekly basis so obviously and I think the word for me has evolved um, whilst as before I would say I was very you know short-term thinking but I think one big thing of for leadership is obviously long-term thinking and not just thinking about the moment and even if something happens in that in the moment that you know for me it's changed now from dealing with the situation yes but how can we avoid this for the future you know why did it go wrong um you know how can we improve how can we become better and and you know very quickly going to becoming uh, proactive and um and yeah thinking how we can avoid this problem going forward so that's that's one aspect the other aspect I would say is, yeah, on the word proactive, I think it's, it's a key word for me when it comes to leadership, which is actually, you know, um, yeah, thinking creatively or thinking about how we can how we can improve the organization. Are we, are we, you know, performance reviewing? Are we doing what we really need to be doing right now? Or what could we be doing? Or where are the opportunities we can't see kind of thing? Um, so... Um, so being proactive, I think, is, is very, very key for, for leadership. It's interesting yeah. that you talk about proactivity as being the preferred approach as opposed to sort of that short-term reactivity, because I think um, in the current situation, especially a lot of businesses are being forced into that reactive side of things because there is so much changing um, in terms of government guidelines, different guidance coming out every single day. And businesses really are struggling to see um, what's going to happen in the long term because there's so much uncertainty. So it's important yeah. really to strike a balance between being proactive and reactive but has it been difficult for you be trying to look at the long term at the moment given all of that uncertainty that is there a little bit so the way that we handle the situation now that is obviously when the lock time came in i mean i immediately went i mean this is yeah this has to do with actually my experiences in the industry and you know even before the coronavirus you know things go wrong in a business and like i said you do previously i was only just thinking about the situation and resolving it but because my thinking is differently nowadays even in this coronavirus situation, I did think, okay, what do we, you know, what's, what could be the consequences of what's now happening? And especially when the full lockdown came in. Um, so what I personally started doing, and I, I mean, it was, you know, honestly very stressful because it's an, un, you know, it, yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty, but we looked into all the different aspects of the business to see what we could do to sort of preempt the uncertainty that's, that's there. And obviously, you know, one of the things we did was send out an email to all the customers saying that, 
you know, things are fine for now. However, we are concerned for the near future and we recommend that everybody, you know, buy a little bit extra or put in a contract if you don't have a contract with our company. On the purchasing side, you know, we I asked the purchasing team to review what we might be needing for the next three to six months and, you know, and for us to stock up a little bit extra in order to, you know, have a buffer um, and, and obviously need to work quite closely with my finance manager as well to see we could, could you know, manage, uh, the, you know, the extra amount of, um, you know, cash needed to, to have extra stock. However, you know, March was, you know, um, you know, because people want to eat, you need to eat still, but also health foods are very popular right now. So we are very fortunate to be in a position where we're, sales are at least temporarily up um, and obviously that's also helped us uh, not, I didn't know that when I started the contingency plan however it's it's kind of worked out uh, in the sense that also sales are up as well for us at the moment yeah it's really positive to hear that and um, from essentially managing this crisis what would you say is the biggest thing that you've learned as a business leader from all this so in due to the crisis yes yeah, so that's the other side of it. So in terms of the coming coming into what you said about being reactive, so um, yeah, I did. I did at the same time. I was as I was continuously planning. I was sort of also saying, oh, you know, there's there's a massive uncertainty here. I don't know which of our companies are going to do well or not do well in the current market. So I did. You know, there was a slight reactiveness and and slight panic on that uh, for maybe ten days or something like that. And uh, I did make some quick decisions to to uh, see if we could sell some B2C as well. And I made some kind of quick decisions to buy in certain things that we might not need. And also we're, I mean, yeah, there's some uncertainty if we can sell those things now, but those were a little bit more reactive. So even from that, I actually, I, I feel like I learned that, yeah, yeah, again, being reactive, is, it's, it's often not so good because yeah, you're, you're kind of taking a decision, um, from an emo- yeah, from an emotional place uh, like fear, often or fear or worry or concern, uh, rather than actually, let's see, you know, what's the, you know, you don't have to do a full business plan, but maybe you think, okay, you know, if we now do this, go this way, you know, what are all the different consequences? Who's involved? You know, check, you know, check the financials more closely. Um, make make at least a short term plan, and maybe not make that split decision just because you feel very afraid or worried about the current situation. I think. That's yeah. I would say again, being proactive and thinking long term, and you know, talking to your team, talking to other people, and then you know, like you need you need you need a lot of the good data in order to make a good decision, and don't rush into making big decisions just because the market has changed. I would say that would be my recommendation. Because while it has been um, a real test um, for businesses um, in their ability to be reactive and make decisions with quite short notice, it's important to acknowledge the fact that these decisions can't be made, as you say, uh, with a great deal of emotion, can they? It's got to be very well thought out, a pragmatic decision. And that's something that's really hit home during this period as well. Absolutely. That's, That's right. Now, um, we talked about, of course, how this um, whole crisis has been a learning curve for businesses. Um, Would you say it's actually possible to be a good leader in any context without actually going on that journey of learning and maybe making mistakes and learning from those mistakes? Sorry, how do you how do you mean? How do you mean? So would you say that it's possible to become a good leader without having that learning curve, without having the um, sort of experience of having to make decisions, perhaps getting some of those decisions wrong and then learning from that? I think it's very difficult. I would say at least it's one aspect. I'm sure you can, you know, you can go with some kind of leadership training or program and learn a lot of things and obviously avoid a lot of mistakes. And of course, the other thing, which is also helpful to me is, is of course, reading books 
uh, watching YouTube videos and things like that, well, you know, by other entrepreneurs to, to learn from their mistakes and, and try to avoid those mistakes. So there's definitely a lot you can do on that side. And I would definitely recommend, uh, you know, to be continuously learning as a business owner, leader, you know, um, managing director. Um, however, the experience side of it is key as well because, you know, your, you know, your company and, you know, you're the country you're in, the clients you're dealing with are going to be unique and, and you're not going to be able to, you know, preempt everything. And you definitely need, you know, uh, to learn from your mistakes or, you know, learn by, but learn by doing an experience. So I think it's a balance of both. Um, I think you're absolutely right in what you say there, uh, Daniel, because um, leaders essentially are going to go into these roles and they're not going to have all of the answers, are they? Some of it is going to be a little bit of trial and error and a little bit of experience because, as you say, you're dealing with very different sets of people and being able to manage that and sort of gauge what's the right approach to take is something that can only come with that experience. Exactly, exactly. So we talked about um, your leadership style as well and um, some of um, the examples that you mentioned there, of course, learning from entrepreneurs from YouTube videos. Are there maybe um, examples of specific leadership figures who've maybe been an inspiration to you and had an impact on your own style of leadership, would you say? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's a lot of different um, uh, uh, leaders that I look up to or, you know, uh, entrepreneurs. Um, I mean, Richard Branson is one of those people I, I do. I don't, I'm not... Uh, I'm not. I'm a little bit like him, but not. not I can't compare. You know, in terms of being adventurous and liking new projects like that, and and thinking outside of the box. However, I only have one company, so I can't really, I can't really compare myself with him uh, in the way that the success he's had. But um, well, I like his how how he does business and his philosophy on business um, a lot. Um, key people. I mean, there's there's a lot of different uh, people have influenced me over the, over the years. Obviously, he's he's somebody I re, you know. Recently looked into a lot, read his autobiography as well, and and um, so that's I guess that's the most the thing that comes to mind the most at the moment. Um, there's obviously other people, Steve Jobs, um, Brian Tracy, of course, he's like a motivational um, trainer. I mean, I recommend a lot of his books and audio tapes as well, just for personal efficiency. And um, you know, he has a lot of different tips, but of course, it's also he he owns his own company as well. Um, and there's there's a long long list. <laughs> there are some fantastic examples there. And um, did you always imagine um, early on in uh, your career, when you were much younger, um, that you would end up in a leadership position yourself, like those people? No, I wouldn't. I I, I didn't really think um, if you asked me ten years ago that I would be a company owner today and, and leading people or leading a company. Then yeah, no, I would not have said so. Um, however, being there now, I would say that it it. I like being in that position, even though, yeah, I think my upbringing and where I was when I was in my younger years, yeah, I guess I wouldn't see myself, you know, the word leader wouldn't really be associated with me or I wouldn't really think of myself as a leader. But I think that also helps in uh, yeah, understanding leadership differently. Leadership, you know, people think leadership is sort of being the boss and deciding everything and telling people what to do. But, you know, that's what I don't think true leadership is. Leadership is, is you know, taking care of people, taking care of your people, taking care of people you, that you serve and uh, and obviously like i said anticipating things being proactive you know seeing what people might want even before they know they want it i don't know there's a lot you know that pro, going back to that pro, proactive that we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast uh, i think that's i think that's a, a, a key word and i think that's that's what leadership is and the, and the and the care aspect being proactive and seeing how you can serve your customers better what you can do to improve your product or service 
and and really take care of people. So I think, um, and I like I like taking care of people. So that's why it suits me. <laughs> exactly. And um, interestingly, um, you talk about how uh, you never really envisioned um, yourself uh, becoming a leader one day, and um, you ended up, of course, becoming one. Um, it kind of links back, doesn't it, to this idea that it's a journey of development being a leader? Because there are some people out there that might think um, great leaders are just born great leaders and are just ready made for these positions. But your story proves that that's not necessarily the case. Um, correct, and that's very and that's very true. And I think you know, I think also you know your family upbringing, where you were, if you were, I think you know they, there's a classic as well that the oldest one is the is is um, kind of become become entrepreneurs or become leaders. But and I think actually that that might be some people that you know were. I mean, I was a younger child in my family, and and a lot of people might feel that that's you know, they, that that's why they have a self-concept of not being a leader as well, um, as well as maybe their school experience, if they weren't so confident in their school. So all these kind of concepts that we um, come with us as we become an adult might might make you think that you can't never be a leader. And I think and that's sort of a block. It can be a block there, which, you know, should, you know, people should get help to sort of unblock that, I think, <laughs> and, and really understand what leadership is. Yeah, I completely see where you're coming from. Um, so if yeah. we take a look at the uh, the future now, uh, Daniel, um, looking at mm. the next 12 months, um, do tell me um, before we wrap things up um, what you hope to achieve collectively, um, yourself and Impact Foods, and what you imagine uh, will sort of happen in the future, particularly through COVID-19 and then coming out of the other side of that. Yeah, so I mean, of course, the initial goal for the company was obviously for us just to sort of, you know, maintain or stay afloat. That was, and obviously, I feel like we've already... I feel like I feel quite confident we are going to be okay. Um, so that's um, so now. Obviously, I think yeah, the, the goal for us, I think, is to sort of try to to I guess grow and thrive even in this kind of environment, which is the next goal we I've set for the, for the organization. At the same time, continuing to continuously plan and and prepare, you know, cover ourselves um, uh, because there's still uncertainty, and also you know we are getting customers kind of you know, struggling or whatever. So we have to sort of accommodate that. But but I think, at the, yeah, at the moment I've come to, you know, it's taken about a month to get here, but I feel at this point that it is possible to thrive in this environment. You know, yeah, you know, all the rules, a lot of the rules have changed. So, you know, we need to understand those rules and, uh, you know, think about what are the changes and how, how people are buying and how, you know, how we can, how we can reach people differently in the current marketplace. And I, but I, you know, I already see that it's possible. Like I said, I've already taken my company a little bit towards that, um, so the, towards that way, um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of the general thing, I do think obviously society is going to, you know, has changed and will continue to, you know, this is going to have a huge, you know, um, consequence or impact for, for the for the whole world, the whole country, uh, um, because you know, yeah, where everybody's home based. I mean, it's even even though they they let up the lockdown. You know, it's going to take a while for people to get back, or you know, some people might be able to get back to work, but others not. And and you know, it's just going to feel weird, I think, for everybody <laughs> for a while there. And and it's of course nobody knows when we're going to get back to normality either. So it's possible that um, you know a lot of the things won't change for for quite a few few months. So um, yeah, I guess we just have to accept the new reality, I think, and 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 adapt. And I think this, the sooner as a, as a business uh, leader owner. I think, you know, you need you just need to kind of come to acceptance really quickly. If you can't come to the acceptance, you can't move on to become uh, creative, proactive, and to start serving your customers again effectively. So, you know, uh, I felt 
I wasn't accepting the situation at one point, uh, you know, and, and I think it's hard to accept because it's such a crazy thing. <laughs> but I think you need to get there. And in that way, you can be much more efficient and effective. Exactly. Um, yeah. Business does need to be innovative at this time because it is um, a transitional phase. And um, the way that we do business is going to change beyond this outbreak, I think. And um, business does need to be creative in order to seize upon the opportunities that will come as a result of this. And I think what would be fantastic for the listeners as well, Daniel, is if in a few months time when the mist starts to lift and things do become a little bit more certain, if we could perhaps have you back on the program to look at this retrospectively and um, discuss um, sort of how these hopes of yours have been played out. But for today, I have to say I've really enjoyed having you on the program. It's been an absolute pleasure and incredibly insightful. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on and speak with me today. Fantastic. I really enjoyed it. And yeah, I'd love to come back at some point and uh, and discuss how how everything went. <laughs> Thanks I th- a lot. I think it would be really insightful and thank you so much for your time today. Um, coming up no next worries. on um, today's programme, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricketer Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew and that will be coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's to blame. I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at Mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, Uh, thankfully it didn't particularly (laughs) stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out, you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- 
relatively old is probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets before a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis, my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of, because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, th the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You Quite. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point now because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance 
and it put a whole new generation, especially of children, school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself, what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished. For, for Absolutely. Uh, everything you say there is absolutely right. Like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation. But probably more importantly, it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda and... 
you know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the, all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, what we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and i was very lucky uh having both trevor bayless and owen morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through um and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so, so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to 
buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know about you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know, this experience we'd all been through. So after she died in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change, 
and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about well, it. Well, I think it's a, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there and we can have our own 
version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's going to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.